Hey guys, it's Elaine. We have a quick update for you, our faithful listeners. Every other week, we scour the internet to find indie women musicians to soundtrack these shows. And we've been sharing a little bit about those women at the end of each show in our Music Maker section. But we've decided to move our Music Maker section to its own show. So next week, on our off week, you will get a mini She Does episode focusing solely on our Music Maker. Next Wednesday, our interview with Nona Marie, whose music you will hear in this episode, will magically appear in your feed. Nona Marie plays in musical projects Dark Dark Dark, Ronia, Fugitive, and Anonymous Choir. It's something new we're trying, so take a listen and let us know what you think. Okay, let's meet Caitlin. There's an acting teacher in New York who's really amazing, um, and he said to me, actors choose themselves. That has always really stuck with me. Like, and I think you could sub in the word artist, right, with a capital A. Like, the people that we are drawn to, the, the real creatives are people who choose themselves and choose to be authentic and live their particular life. You are listening to She Does, a series that features women working in media, all forms of media. We wanted to know how these women got to where they are today, so we asked and found out and thought you might like to know too. I'm Sarah Ginsberg, And I'm Elaine Sheldon. And today, we'd like you to meet actor and writer Caitlin Fitzgerald, one of Hollywood's emerging talents. You may have seen her in It's Complicated, starring John Krasinski and Meryl Streep. She was also in Damsels in Distress and Newlyweds, among other films and TV shows including Gossip Girl, How to Make It in America, and Law & Order SVU. Caitlin may be best known for her role as Libby Masters on Showtime Network's Masters of Sex. The series, which is in its third season, is set in the late 1950s, and it is a drama centered around the pioneers of the science of human sexuality. Caitlin splits her time between New York and L.A., but we met up with her and her pup Charlie in their apartment in L.A. Can you hear my puppy drinking water? Yeah. My water out of my glass? Hey, Charlie! I know, it's your favorite kind of water. My water. Caitlin is sweet, soft-spoken, but clever, and very tall. You are pretty tall. How tall are you? Like 5'10 and a half. And when did you hit your growth spurt? <sighs> I think it was always pretty consistent. I remember being tall in, f like, fourth grade, and then it just kept going. Like, I still might be growing. It's possible. I'm not sure if Caitlin is growing in height, but she's definitely growing in presence in Hollywood. Her life may be there now, but she very much identifies with the place that she was born and raised, the great state of Maine. Which is sort of psychologically and literally as far away a place from L.A. as you can get in the United States, I think. I sort of feel like I had one of the last, like, innocent childhoods. Uh, I grew up in a tiny town called Camden that was, when I was growing up, was like 5,000 people in the winter and then... 20,000 in the summer when all the tourists would arrive. I rode my bicycle to school when I was in kindergarten. And I mean, that might have just been naivete on my parents' part. Um, but, you know, it was a real, true small town upbringing. But a small town doesn't equate to boredom, especially for children whose imaginations can run wild no matter where they are. And Caitlin's ran and ran and ran. I mean, I was always making stuff in a way that now as an adult, I wish I still had or like I'm always trying to get back to because it, you know, I was writing stories all the time and making plays and drawing and it just like creativity was, was easy. I don't know at what point that sort of changed, but now it's like oh, <laughs> a lot harder. But um, I was very happy 
alone as a kid. Then, I mean, I grew up in the middle of the woods, so I suppose one has to be. <laughs> she got involved with community theater at the age of six, attending and acting in many, many plays. From the beginning, it was a full-on love affair with the stage. My first role was the hind end of a cow in Jack and the Beanstalk. I can still remember the song and the dance. Well, the song goes moo, 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 moo. So I've really paid my dues throughout the years. I was so convinced too as a child. Like I remember having this very clear understanding that I was like the greatest actress that had ever lived and being like really confused slash devastated when I wasn't cast always as the lead. So, um, you know, but I, for years I was like the chorus girl and the, you know, like woodland animal. Caitlin continued acting through high school. And when it came time for college, she made her first big move to New York City to attend NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. We were all sort of, all of the students were like, had been big fish in little ponds and were like arriving. And suddenly there was, you know, however many hundreds of us. I had teachers who were great to me and some who were less great to me. And there was, from some of my teachers, a sort of like, I will break you to build you kind of attitude. But I loved, I loved acting school and I, I felt very creative and fulfilled. We never know in college just how lucky we are to be there, do we? Like a time when people actually cared about what you think they care about. You're like creative genius and, you know, building you and nurturing you and, you know, graduating and not becoming a movie star in like five minutes was a rude awakening for sure. Caitlin has always loved New York. She stayed after college and was lucky enough to get an agent. But as an actor, that doesn't mean you're all set. Caitlin learned to hustle, showing up at countless auditions, some of which were fruitful and some complete flops. She acted in tons of student films. She interned at Philip Seymour Hoffman's Labyrinth Theater Company and found a place for herself in a vibrant community. I, I remember very distinctly my first Shakespeare play and being so caught up in the story and... The, my part that when this person ran on with a sword and I screamed and I hadn't planned to do that. It just was like the thing that was supposed to happen in that moment. And I think that's why most people become artists because you have those moments of like sort of transcendent creativity where you're kind of not in charge anymore and you're so present and you're so in it. And, and especially in the theater, there's this like amazing energetic feedback loop with the audience where you scream and you're that in the moment and then they all scream too, you know? And then you're like completely alive all together all at once. And that for me is, I mean, that's the best feeling yeah. in the world. Yeah. It doesn't happen all that often, but it's good enough that you'll keep chasing it. I'll keep chasing it. Think of a place I would go Caitlin landed some pretty notable roles in her post-college New York years. In 2009, she acted alongside Meryl Streep in It's Complicated. And in 2010, she starred in the off-Broadway play Hedda Gabler. And then Caitlin found herself in Los Angeles, 
during pilot season. I don't know if you know about pilot season, but it's the worst time in any actor's life. And you read about 300 scripts, most of which are drivel, and then a couple stand out, and this was one of them. It was Masters of Sex, a show based on a 2009 biography by Thomas Mayer about real-life sex researchers Virginia Johnson and Bill Masters. Tonight you will be participating in a medical study that examines the physiology of sexual response during auto-manipulation. Essentially, what happens to the body during masturbation. The show masterfully weaves fiction with reality, drawn from countless hours of interviews with Virginia. It's centered around three characters, Virginia, Bill, and his wife, Libby Masters. You'll be provided with whatever stimulation you may require. And then we will ask you to begin. Shall we get started? I was like, oh, this is so great, but I don't really want to play like a 50s housewife. That sounds sort of boring. But then I went in and auditioned and I was like, I walked out and I was like, yeah, and that went really well. I'm a really good actor. And then I heard nothing. I was like, well, I guess I'm not that good an actor. But Caitlin got a call from her agent about four months later. Masters of Sex was doing another round of auditions, and they wanted to bring her back in. After a second audition for the director of the pilot, John Madden, Caitlin got the call. She was in. Caitlin was hired to play Libby Masters, the wife of sex researcher Bill, who is played by Michael Sheen. Bill and Virginia, played by Lizzie Kaplan, are research partners that have a little bit more than a professional relationship. Over the three seasons, we watched it evolve into a three-way marriage, and Caitlin's character, Libby, is often the third wheel. They asked Johnny if I was a single mother. Can you imagine? So we are going to remedy that. Take off your coat, Bill. Welcome home. Libby is the quintessential 1950s housewife, the one we've all seen in old magazines. Or at least, that's her on the surface. But underneath, there's a darkness, the struggle to have a family, and her coping with rejection. Knowing that her husband is having an affair with Virginia also coping with her husband's rejection within his medical community. They saw his research as unprofessional and obscene at the time, which ripples into her life. I really fell in love with her through the audition process. As I said, initially I was like, I don't, I don't want to play a 50s housewife who wants a baby. Like, that was her whole MO sort of in the first season, and um, I could personally couldn't relate to that. What moved me about her is that, um, you know, she's a woman who sort of fed a bill of goods that, like, if she got all of these different elements, then her life would be happy and she'd be fulfilled, which is a narrative that I think is still really true for women and, and men, um, but particularly for women. And, and I think, you know, sort of discovering with her where her satisfaction lies or could lie has been really exciting. Masters of Sex is shot in L.A., but the pilot was shot in New York. But this wasn't the New York that Caitlin was familiar with. And they really spared no expense. And we were shooting in these unbelievable locations. And I think my first, first day on set, we were shooting a cocktail party. I stepped onto the set and they'd, you know, all the extras have already been brought in and they've, they've done, you know, atmospheric smoke and everyone's smoking cigarettes and drinking martinis and wearing like 50s black tie. And it was like stepping through a time warp. It was so cool. And I was like, oh, I, I really hope this goes to series. This would be really fun. Caitlin was born in the 80s, but her every day was about to become the 50s. She really would be stepping back in time. And to understand her character, to become Libby Masters, Caitlin began investigating. I'm a real nerd for the research, so I read a lot about the 50s. And I, I sent out an email to all of my aunts and uncles and my parents asking for stories about their parents from the 50s. Moments or, you know, what did they like to drink? What did they like to do for fun? Just to sort of 
have that kind of stuff in my in my brain. I bought also a lot of magazines from the 50s because I feel like mine is a character who reads a lot of magazines and wow, are they a specific <laughs> uh, instruction manual <laughs> for fem a very specific kind of femininity. So that was helpful. It just so happens that I have right here on my recently Windex coffee table, my computer. And on that, the May 1955 issue of Housekeeping Monthly. Ooh, anything good in there? The Good Wife's Guide. Step one, have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready on time for his return. This is a way of letting him know that you have been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. Prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup, put a ribbon in your hair, and be fresh looking. He has just been with a lot of work-weary people. You know, very prescriptive and they make a kind of religion out of being a housewife. I've just started reading The Feminine Mystique, which was written in the 60s. The, the writer, uh, Betty Friedan, is talking, was a journalist and is talking about how, you know, in the 30s and 40s, we had sort of career women who were like, you know, going to work when the men were at war and learning to fly planes. And, you know, had the, the sort of narrative was about like going to college and you can do anything. And then in the 50s, there was this crazy shift. The homemaker walks miles every day from sink to icebox. The idea was like the most you could ever hope for as a woman, the, to sort of really embrace your femininity meant being a housewife. Just to iron one of hubby's shirts, for instance. The iron may have to be lifted 20 or 30 times. And if you didn't have complete satisfaction with raising kids and taking care of your husband and your house, uh, then there was something wrong with you. Here's to the ladies, the fair and the weak. Fair they are, we'll all admit. But who dares call them weak? Our modern girls play as hard and with as much vitality and stamina as any man. How do they do it? Where do they find all that energy? For her role, Caitlin has learned how to tango. She gets to wear glamorous clothing, hairstyles, and that perfect 1950s eyeliner. And while there may be some charm to traveling back in time, there's also a heaviness to it. Libby is not a one-dimensional housewife, and Caitlin has to get in that mindset. My character has a late-term miscarriage in the first season, and um, there, there was like three or four scenes in the hospital where she's sort of waiting to see if the baby's okay, discovering the baby's not okay, and then after the um, sort of surgery where they take the baby out, and um, we shot them all in one day, and that was pretty intense. Caitlin says that she has to actively stop her character's emotions from seeping into her own life, her real life, the life she leads with Charlie the dog drinking out of her cup. You know, it's actually, it's really hard for me. She's definitely, my character's a sad person, and we've been back to work for a week, and I can already sort of feel this, like, creep of blackness <laughs> descending, and, you know, I don't, I don't know, because I think on some level it's probably not like the most healthy psychologically to carry that weight with me all the time, but I also sort of feel like it's the actor's job to like, like, you know, it's sort of like the burden of the work in some way and the sacrifice of the work. But I'm wondering if mentally wrapping your head around something like that in acting, if there's ever been an instance in your life where something you've learned through a role mm -hmm. has actually helped you respond to it in real life. You know, I feel like life and art for me are so, they're, they always are speaking to each other. So 
the summer that I played uh, Juliet, for example, the director kept saying, like, you, I don't believe you're in love with him. You have to, like, open your heart to this actor. I, I need to see it more. And I ended up that summer falling deeply in love with someone else who was there, not playing Romeo, but playing another character. And that, you know, this sort of, like, parallel journeys um, was kind of amazing. <laughs> so, you know, stuff like that happens fairly frequently, I would say, which is one of the dangers of playing a sad person. <laughs> So there's the emotional aspect of playing Libby that Caitlin has mastered. But then there's also the physical appearance, the costumes, the hair, the makeup. And Caitlin, she's low maintenance. She doesn't even own a blow dryer. But every morning she spends two hours, surrounded by a talented team of professionals, of course, getting ready to appear in a period drama, which is ironically close to the amount of time a woman of the 1950s would spend getting ready. Like women could have, could have like run the world, cured like hundreds of diseases, done everything if we weren't so busy getting ready for millennia. I mean, the, especially in the 50s. These women, it just, to be Libby Masters takes so much work <laughs> just to like get dressed in the morning. It's insane. The 50s outfits take a while to get into because the underwear is complicated and the stockings are complicated. Pee takes like 15 minutes. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a, it's a profession to be a woman. <laughs> I mean, even still, right? Like, we go to these award ceremonies or whatever, and the boys put on a suit and comb their hair. And for us, it's so much more money, so much more time. Caitlin's living a very different life doing television in L.A. than she was doing theater and making indie films in New York. It does feel a lot to me, like, I got on this TV show, and then suddenly I'm expected to be a certain kind of actress on a very specific kind of trajectory and one that is very well worn and doesn't feel entirely authentic to who I am. So I'm still really in this negotiation of how to play the game by my rules. I will say, to date, uh, maybe I shouldn't jinx it by speaking it out loud, but um, even when I'm having a really bad morning or really tired, the minute I start acting, I'm full of energy. I can sort of push through anything. Your arms so low to the ground They're filled with taconite, oh You know, there's a lot of people touching your hair and your face and your clothes. And you become sort of weirdly numb to that. And you can be like having a full conversation with someone while you're being touched everywhere <laughs> and pulled and <laughs> prodded. Um, you're wearing a microphone, uh, so you have to be careful what you say or like, you know, pooping. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, it's what's so cool to me about film is that there's 200 people all working to make this one moment happen that we capture on the camera and like that energy feels very specific and it's part of I think what helps you get there when you're having a bad or slow day because everyone's pushing for this one thing to happen do you ever feel vulnerable yeah hopefully every time I think vulnerability is a really important 
part of art, probably. So you kind of thrive off of it? Or you? I, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> it's not my favorite feeling, but it's definitely something I, you know, have spent a lot of time and money training myself to feel in front of other people. Yeah. I feel like it's such a brave profession. <laughs> I really Thanks do. for saying that. I really do. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I mean, I, 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 I can never about these interviews, and I'm not, there's like nothing, no camera. <laughs> You're literally putting like all of yourself so that we can find something to relate to and, you know, find meaning of things that we're dealing with. Like, and get away from our lives. Yeah. Totally. See ourselves, right? Like yeah. this is, this is actors, I mean, at, our, at its best pared down, away from all the crap. Um, I feel like that's what keeps me in the industry is that, like, historically, we've always needed actors in the world because we need to see ourselves. And, um, like, that feels, that feels honorable to me. That's the thing I come back to when I get lost in, like, you know, clothing, <laughs> red carpets, <laughs> nonsense. You feel the way the middle talk more about authenticity too and yeah. do you ever feel like you lose your forget who you are because you're either you know acting in your role or acting for an interview do you ever question like am I being me or am I being the me that they think I am or want me to be I get asked this a lot about being an actor of like how do you like put on another persona in a character and I I'm really suspect of that because I think I think we like to believe we're one sort of set person, but actually I'm different with you guys than I am with my boyfriend, than I am with my dog, than I am with my mom, than I am with my enemy. You know, like we have so such a range of colors in us, many more than I think we're comfortable acknowledging, right? Like so many of us are afraid to be rageful women, are afraid to be, you know, big or all these things. So for me as an actor, playing parts is actually, part of what I love about it is that it's, it's a chance to explore parts of myself, right? Um, and find how I, how I am a 50s housewife and what resonates for me in this story. But the other part of your question about like, how do you stay authentic in an industry that can be so much about pleasing other people, um, it's really hard. And you know, you can feel it when you're lying. I can feel it when I'm lying to myself. Um, so then what you do about that is, I guess, the question. I'm not entirely sure yet. <laughs> I mean, making my own work has been really important. Caitlin is not only an actress, she's a writer. And before Masters of Sex, when she was living in New York City, she was working on small films, films with budgets of less than $10,000, shooting on the 5D, low-tech. In the process, Caitlin thought to herself, you know, it's pretty easy to make a film. So she gathered together some friends from a play she was in. And we were having dinner to talk about doing another play, and I said, well, why don't we make a movie? This is so easy. You just get this camera... We'll go to Maine. We'll shoot it in my hometown. We'll just like we'll just make a movie. It'll be great. We'll like two weeks. We'll just do this thing. And um, Caroline 
who ended up directing it and co-wrote it with me, we shared a cab uptown after dinner. And she was like, I think I'd really like to direct. And I was like, great, let's do that. And we shook hands, we shook on it. I remember, we were like, we're gonna do this. They didn't know what they were getting into. And it's probably for the best. They made the film on their terms, with their own rules. The Handshake was the planting of a seed that would later become Like the Water, a feature film that follows Charlie, played by Caitlin, who is a young journalist returning home to write her eulogy for her best friend, Catherine. Caitlin co-wrote the film with Caroline Von Kuhn, who, as Caitlin mentioned, directed it. The film was produced by Emily Best, the founder of Seed and Spark, who will actually be our guest next episode. As Caitlin and Caroline began brainstorming and writing, they discovered they had a mutual narrative, one from their early 20s. We'd both lost a very, very close friend, a contemporary, and we were interested in writing about what it is to lose someone young who's also young um, and how sort of alienating that can be and disruptive to your whole notion of what life is, I guess, um, as a sort of a, a strange coming-of-age story. So that was our, the, the jumping-off place. The handshake, the sealing of the deal, was in November. And by the time July rolled around, they were in full production. Catherine always knew she wanted to be an artist, and she was creative in ways most of us can only dream of being. None of us had any idea what we were doing or how much work it would entail. Um, and I think that's probably a good thing, because I think if we'd known, we never would have done it. She turned 18 the day she moved to New York. Her first apartment was a bug-infested six-floor walk-up in the East Village, but she loved it. She said it reminded her of a Parisian garret. But it was full of charm, even as she was itching bites all day. I'm sorry, this isn't what I wanted. I hate that she's gone. That's all. I did all the sort of physical, um, the actual writing of it, and I wrote the first draft in like two weeks, longhand on like scrap paper in my apartment. And I would write it at like six in the morning before the sort of like judgment voice in my brain <laughs> had fully woken up. And then from there, we put it into, you know, screenwriting software and, and we would read it aloud to each other. And that's how we sort of edited. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things I would do differently. <laughs> and certainly I wish, you know, when I watch it, I'm dissatisfied with so many things. But um, I'm also super proud of us for, you know, having done it, which is, I think, the important thing. So how did you, like, reconcile that as far as you know, looking at your hometown differently, like more of a set that you're acting in, but also kind of reliving some of these memories? It was intense. I mean, there were some really sad days. <laughs> but also, you know, I think, I think making, mm, tale as old as time, but like making things out of the things that happened to us, out of our wounds and from our darkness is like the most therapeutic thing you can do. We screened the movie uh, at this great, you guys have been there, the Strand Movie Theater in Rockland, which is a movie theater um, across the street from this building where my friend lived. And we used to go to the Strand all the time. So, you know, there was something, I mean, there's a beautiful symmetry when things like that happen and you get to make something that's sort of in honor of this person and show it at the movie theater where, you know, we used to like put on our weird vintage dresses and go to the cinema, you know? So that's... Uh, that is super satisfying. A golden thread.
As much as we all would love to make our own films all the time, let's be honest, we gotta make money. And Elaine and I make money through client work and paid gigs. Caitlin makes money through the business, the Hollywood and television business. There are parts of the business she likes and other parts not so much. There are actors who love to audition. I am not one of them. I, I wish that I could tell you that it's like just a great opportunity to work and like try things. No, I hate it. I think it's really fake feeling to me, especially auditioning for film where you're doing a scene that's set in the woods and you're naked. But in the audition room, you're in like a shitty office space with fluorescent lights, reading with usually like an intern, you know, sitting in a folding chair. It doesn't feel at all like like acting to me. It just feels like it's a very specific set of skills that I may or may not have. Um, and it makes me so nervous. And it's really where I get into trouble because I go like, what do they want from me? What do they want from me? And then I'm in that headspace as opposed to like, what's compelling for me about this part or this character? So... I've had some unbelievably degrading experiences in auditions. I recently went in for a guy, <clears throat> and he was reading the scene with me, and he put his face behind the camera. He's a casting director in New York, and put his face behind the camera so I couldn't even make eye contact with him. I didn't want to look directly <laughs> into the lens, so I was sort of vaguely looking around the camera, delivering this very emotional monologue. And I look, I look up, and he's just scrolling through his phone, like, in the middle of my audition. And this is, like, last year. You know, this is after I've, quote, unquote, like, you know, put myself on the map a little bit and, like, have, you know, and this is, it's, like, for, like, a guest spot on a TV, like, TV show in New York. So uh, things like that happen a lot. So I think what has really surprised me, and it shouldn't have because it's what everyone says, is just what how much of a business the business is and how little... Uh, people actually care, uh, you know, about your creativity often, um, at least on a sort of studio level. Just how much bureaucracy and how many suits there are around the creative process. We've all seen women's roles on television shift and change over the years. And now we're actually seeing women-centric casts, less stereotypical portrayals. In television, there's more latitude for women to play strong, compelling characters, women that you and I would recognize. In films, I think the studio system is so broken. You know, it's just these sort of superhero films, and, and the, the female character, character <laughs> singular in those films, tends to be, you know, the girlfriend or the, the mother or the wife, and they're really uninteresting parts and always go to, you know, a huge celebrity. So I think we have a lot of work to do in Hollywood in particular for women still. But the indie world is, has been amazing and, you know, so many great platforms for people to be making their own films and women in particular. Do you see weaknesses in yourself and are you working on that or just accept it and build that into your roles? What do you mean by weaknesses? Um, things that you, you know, when you're performing or... Do you mean personal or when she's acting or...? Either. But, you know, things that you keep consistently notice about yourself and you're like, I want to get better at this. Sure, of course. I, I think the thing that I've been working on the most is to not qualify them as weaknesses. Our culture is so oriented towards, like, success and achievement and very little towards process. I think, like, in my work and my life, because they inform each other always, there are things that 
I will work on my whole life. And I'm really trying to embrace all of myself. These are the stories that I want to tell and the stories that are compelling to me where we see people who are really human. And, you know, Hollywood is a town that especially wants women to be sort of not human, actually. <laughs> you know, wants to deny a whole part of their humanity and their messiness and their complications and their aging and fat and cellulite and on and on. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to just take up my space and say, like, yeah, I have cellulite at school because I'm a human. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like what happens when we start telling those stories for the next generation of girls and for all of us, right? Like that, that really matters, I think. Do you, do you think there's a, like such a thing as I made it moment? Or do you feel that moment mm -hmm. yet? <laughs> uh, there are great moments of accomplishment. Martha Graham talks about the divine dissatisfaction of being an artist. You know, you sort of reach the top of the mountain and you go like, I made it to the top of the mountain! And then you see the next mountain and it's even higher! You know, it's sort of like, I hope uh, that, that I'm always trying to do something more and discover something deeper and wider and um, that the journey kind of never ends in that regard. Do you ever get in like a creative rut? And if so, what do you do to re-inspire, get things moving, what you, maybe reading or watching? Or... Yeah, nature is really important, being from Maine. Uh, more and more, I can really feel as I, as I get older. Uh, I just want to, I don't want to be living in an apartment with airplanes flying overhead. Um, I, I like, you know, all of my dreams and fantasies right now are about living in, in the woods. Let's wait till this plane passes, actually. Mm -hmm. Thing is loud. Is that it over there? I'm surprised Maybe. it's that loud. I might be like in a flight path of both helicopters and planes. There's a lot of action right over the house. I, I can't imagine what it is to grow up in this city and be in this business because for me, getting to go home to Maine, where like no one cares, you know, where I like don't wear makeup and don't wear shoes, and like um, it's such an important perspective because this town can be very myopic. Uh, so it's good to get out and find a way to reconnect to the realness. Because, you know, even when you're on a, an uptick and having success, there will come a moment where it goes away or it changes. You know, you've got to have your feet planted deeply. You have to always be clear. And maybe it changes throughout your life, but, like, really clear about why you want to do what you're doing. And if that reason doesn't, like, light you up, it's going to be a, It's already going to be a hard road, but, like, it's. I think you've got to have the compass, you know, a true north to be moving towards. Thank you to Caitlin Fitzgerald for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. And as an update, she recently finished shooting two films, Always Shine and Manhattan Romance, both of which will be coming out next year in festivals. Also on Hulu, at the end of this month, July, you'll be able to watch Like the Water. Masters of Sex has been picked up for its third season. We're not sure what to expect from this season, other than the 1960s having a radical effect on Libby. 
but the first episode of the season is available for free right now on YouTube. We have a link on our website. Visit our website, shedoespodcast.com, to find out more information about Caitlin's. This episode was produced by us, Elaine Sheldon, and Sarah Ginsberg, and sound design is by Bradford Krieger of Hanging Horse Studio. And this podcast is a product of Slate's Panoply Network. This week's featured music maker is Nona Marie, who plays in musical projects Dark, 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 Ronia, Fugitive, and Anonymous Choir. Tune in next week as we bring you a mini episode featuring Nona. Visit shedoespodcast.com slash music for more information. If you haven't yet, we would love to hear from you on iTunes. Let us know what you think about the show. Your reviews help us find more listeners, too. Thank you for listening to She Does. Invariably, she keeps you guessing as to what she'll do next. That truly is artistry.